episode 11 of Strange Brow Radio. It is I, your host, Tobe Johnson, in the bowels of the Pacific Northwest. Underneath the waning full moon, it is spring, the equinox, the convergence of all three. If you weren't privy to that in mid-March, shame on you. It's good to be back. Today we have author, researcher, experiencer, and some secret background that we won't get into. Sig Sigurdsson. That's his pen name we're using, and that's how we're going to conduct the interview. So, I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but thank you again to our sponsor, Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N at Etsy.com. Check out all the gear. Well, it's not gear. It's museum quality spirit tools. Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N at Etsy.com. Stay in your seat. Or you can stand. Just listen up to this little ditty with author experiencer Sig Sigurdsson. We'll be right back. Author experiencer Sig Sigurdsson has been prone to strange occurrences as an experiencer someone who interacts with the unusual and paranormal throughout his life in mid-March 2019. The day was no different. So what you're about to hear starts off with a description of a man in black type outside of his door. And I say that because of the inside knowledge that he had along the way. But maybe it wasn't a man in black. Maybe it was something else. It's a pretty disturbing interaction, and it goes into some detail about what this man looked like and the knowledge he had, and what he had dripping from his mouth and nose. And then we just go down the, down the rabbit hole, as usual, with Sig. So, long overdue, my talk one evening with Sig Sigurdsson. We have on air with us... Sig Sigurdsson, and we'll just say he's from an undisclosed location somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And last night I got a text about midnight regarding an incident that uh, isn't very unfamiliar to you, but it's been a while since you've had an encounter with what we would call the men in black or the men in plaid. And if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, you can take a look at some previous episodes of Strange Brow live events and follow up on that. And I'll explain more about why I'm so cryptic about that at a later date. But on the phone with us right now is Mr. Sigurdsson. So uh, tell us, at least tell me, what happened and uh, maybe just uh, start from the beginning. Well, you can call me Sig. And... uh... Yeah, so basically, uh, my neighbors on both sides of me uh, have reported ghostly goings-on. Uh, there are a lot more suicides in my neighborhood than most neighborhoods. Um, and um, this area used to be a forest, actually. Uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, where I'm calling from, used to be uh, called Stumptown. And the reason why is uh, it was it was a big forest, and then they cut everything down. And then... Um, 
So there are all those stumps around. And it just so happens that my cottage is the oldest building within at least a mile radius of here. And we're talking about a fairly dense residential area. And um, so this, this neighborhood, you know, is, is known for having um, hauntings, ghosts and stuff like that. I have a different way of looking at ghosts for most people. I don't see them as being the spirits or souls of people who have passed on. I, I see them as being something very different from that. But um, people around me see them in, in that way, that they interpret them in that way. And so ghost stories on both sides of my house. Uh, I, I've had uh, roommates and uh, girlfriends living in my house have experiences with ghosts. I haven't really had a lot of ghostly experiences in this house. It's mainly other people, actually. And um, so, uh, but, you know, back in uh, 2008, I had an experience that was a life-changing experience in the California Redwoods uh, that involved an encounter I had with some uh, men in plaid. And uh, after that, it was about a year later, let's see, it was, or was it the next summer? I, it's been so long. I, I have to work that out on a calendar. You know, it's funny because the internet <laughs> with emails, you can figure these things out. Like I actually figure out which year the, uh, the MIPs, uh, I had the MIP encounter by some emails uh, that I knew some things that had happened before that. So that's how I narrowed it down. Cause I, I didn't keep a journal or diary at the time. Well then, you know, um, well, let's, uh, let's, let's after that hold winter. on a second. Hold on a yeah. second. First. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's start with what the MIPs were just for people that haven't heard this conversation. We're talking about men in black type figures, but they were just wearing plaid clothing. And so describe Not it. at all. Not okay. at all. They weren't men in plaid type. They weren't men in black type figures. Now, the, the one I saw yesterday was a men in black type figure. Um, I've encountered both of these kinds of beings. The other ones were more like Nordics. And um, they were, you know, in a small compact vehicle and uh, they reacted to a Bigfoot callback that I got from out in this river where I was. At the time I thought it was a swamp though because one of the things I've learned from Bigfooting is not to, um, really obsess on maps if you got obviously you can't get lost in a dangerous way but if you kind of control chaos a bit and and you're not literally uh aware of exactly where you are that works in the favor of supernatural events happening especially if you get a little edgy or nervous or something you're feeling uncomfortable that tends to uh facilitate encounters i've found and so back in that time, I don't do that anymore, but back in those days, I was looking for as many encounters as I could find, and I put a lot of work into it. I was going out in the woods from 2000 to 2010, 2008, actually. A couple of things dribbled over into 2010, but <clears throat> a huge amount of experiences happened because I went, I basically went into the woods and into hot spots, uh, you know all the time, every time I could. And I was an online teacher, so I had a lot of time that was flexible. I could maneuver my work week around when I needed to be going out there, having to do with the weather and other things, because I always found that more activity tended to happen in, you know, fairly good weather. Uh, so 
I don't know why that would be, but, you know, I, I did a lot of Bigfooting in cold, miserable weather and, and not nearly as much generally tended to happen in that weather for, to me. If you, but we're talking about logging it over years. We're talking about hundreds of trips, you know, many with other people and some by myself and so by myself. And so I had this encounter with these men in plaid and it was uh, life changing. I, I don't want to go into it now, but it, it involved, uh, you know, some pretty hairy uh, things that happened to me in terms of, uh, well, I don't want to go into it at this time. But anyway, it was, it involved uh, more than just simply a sighting, I'll say. And the Bigfoot encounter uh, actually dribbled away. When, when the MIPs showed up, the Bigfoot retreated across what I thought was the swamp. It was a river, though. Then the following summer... It was either that summer or the summer after. I think it was the, that summer. I was walking my dog, and two very different-looking Nordics were in my neighborhood. Now, it's possible that they were just blonde, long, blonde-haired people. I mean, you know, they were thin, not nearly as muscular as the ones that I thought I saw in the, the car. They, they, those, those two were more muscular, short hair, almost like a light brown hair. These guys had blonde hair and it was long and they were both tall. I'd say they were both about six, two in height. I never got super close to them. I was walking my dog who was a Basenji and she was a very unusual dog. Didn't bark, uh, Egyptian breed, a very ancient Egyptian breed. And these guys basically just started trying to approach me and I thought they were trying to mug me. Because I didn't think, I didn't think Nordics at the time. I, it, to my, to my closest recollection, they were wearing plaid shirts, and they were, uh, they tried to come, they tried to approach me, and I, I just sensed, you know, if someone approaches you when you're walking your dog like that, it feels invasive, like they might want to want to rob you. It didn't seem friendly, and so I actually, my dog and I actually uh, avoided by going to different streets. And uh, so we retreated to another street. Then they would show up at the base of that street a block away and start coming toward me. And then I go the other way. And then they, this went on maybe three to four times. And I actually was concerned enough that I actually purchased protection after that for walking my dog, even though nothing really happened after that. Um, and so I've seen uh, men in plaid in my neighborhood. That was a long time ago. That was 2008 possibly 2009 this was more of a, a, a men in black situation but the guy was not wearing black he was wearing kind of gray a gray coat and uh i think khaki slacks and my dog started barking i was out moving the garbage out in front of my house and uh this guy had this goofy grin on his face and he was staring at me in a way that was unnerving i was just like at the time i didn't think supernatural at all are you still there yeah i'm still Toby? here yeah i'm still here okay okay i didn't think supernatural at all at the time but um my dog you know was 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 out in the street i was trying to get my dog out of the street and the guy had like his face was running like a faucet like i've never seen snot like that in all my life or drool it was like 
watery, a watery discharge. It was not viscous, not as viscous as uh, phlegm or saliva. And it was pouring out of the corners of his mouth and out of both nostrils and coming down his face. And uh, I just immediately, my, my detector went up. I was like, this guy is very sick. He's got something that could be contagious. I want to keep my dog away from him. And he just started, what the first thing he said was, he started commenting on uh, my selling my house. And I haven't told anyone that I'm going to sell my house in the neighborhood. So I was just shocked that he would know that. And he said it in passing. He kind of said, I don't know why you'd want to sell this house. I just love a two-story house. You know, I have a friend and he listed some address. So he's got a two-story house. It's a, it's a really great house. The two-story houses, you know, they're just... And he just started going on and on about all this stuff. And when I first saw him, I thought that uh, he would maybe have some kind of mental disability that made him so he couldn't even speak very plainly. But he spoke fine. It's just that what he was saying made no sense. I I couldn't understand where he was going with it. And um, so my dog kept wanting to sniff his leg. And so I started yelling at my dog because I felt like there was a biohazard possibly with this guy. And so my dog did back off when I yelled at my dog. But when I yelled, it like nonplussed the guy and he he became a little disoriented by my yelling. I wasn't yelling that loud, but it was almost as though he wasn't used to anyone ever yelling ever, you know, even to their dog or if their dog's out in the street. Like I was worried my dog could be hit. So uh, that kind of threw him off, but then he started approaching me onto my property, and I just said right there, I said, uh, I don't understand. I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then this made him stop. And then I said, um, what did I say on that? I said, uh, I just basically said some, some nice closing comment. Um, take care. That's what I said. I said, take care. And he said, oh, it was like he realized, oh, this is, this is, you say take care when something's over. And then he kind of robotically turned and walked out to the side of the street and started walking, kind of ambling, almost like uh, kind of waddling or ambling away from the house. So that's what happened. So you, you how were how close to this guy? Um, I'd say I was probably about seven feet. Oh, you were super Six close. Feet, so the drool and the uh, the viscous fluid, all that stuff, you could see plainly. And it was it. It cl- wasn't viscous. That's the weird thing. It was watery. Okay. It wasn't viscous. It wasn't. Viscous. And it was just pouring out. Now, so I came in and I told my wife about this. My wife actually, you know, she hadn't really had anything supernatural happen to her until she started hanging out with me. And then I, you know, I took her to some places with a lot of activity. We went to a place up on the Clackamas, and she actually had a Bigfoot sighting. I didn't, but she did. And uh, so, you know, then she's she's been in the house when there have been bumps in the attic that sound a little bit too substantial for, I don't know, something on the roof or something. It sounds like it's in the attic. And that's, that's the typical kind of stuff that my other girlfriend heard, too. And they got very upset, and she would sage when she heard that. And so, uh, you know, she's been around some supernatural stuff since she's been my girlfriend. And uh, we're engaged, you know, so it's working out well. And, and so uh, she said, well, you know, what you're describing sounds unlikely. 
I wonder if it could have been fluid from his brain. She's she's in the medical industry, so she listed the actual term for brain fluid or something like that. She said that would be more less viscous like that. Yeah, cerebral and spinal said, fluid, right? CSF. Yes, uh-huh, right, yeah. yeah. And she said that if that were leaking out at that rate, he'd be dead, you know, within an hour. Um, I even think, like, if it was just saliva and uh, snot that, I don't know how you could lose that much bodily fluid that fast. I mean, it was really coming out. And then she said to me something I thought was interesting. She said, well, was the, was there any on the ground and what, what were his clothes covered in it? And I, I honestly couldn't remember seeing anything on the ground or on his, on his coat. Um, which is odd because, so the thing is, if it just started leaking right before he talked to me, then that might make sense because there was obviously a little there, but there wasn't, it wasn't as though it had been leaking that much as he was walking down the street for an hour or something like that, or however long he'd been. It seemed as though it had just started, but I don't know. That's how it seemed because there wasn't a huge amount all over his coat. Well, let's go back to the reading of the mind. If there's a no for sale sign and there's no mention of it uh, via you know, an internet source. Uh, how would this guy know that your house is for sale and why would he be so conversational about it? Yeah. Well, you know, my, my fiance, uh, had a theory about that. She said, Oh, he is, he's one of the spirits in the house. He manifested. And we have this kind of like running joke or kind of a dreadful joke that uh the house is trying to keep me from moving and so uh i can say that you know i've been trying to move out of this house for years and i got really serious about it last october or right around thanksgiving actually is when i really started putting it in full gear um i met with a realtor i did all this stuff boom and then i don't i don't want to say what happened but something happened that would have well I don't want to go into it, but it was a, it was a devastating event in my life and uh, it could have prevented me from moving. And uh, so it's just been a comedy of errors or, or horrible, like the dark comedy of errors. And so uh, she, you know, said, she's like, Oh, the house doesn't want us to move. And, um, and this guy kind of fit in that, mental trajectory because like he basically what he was saying was trying to kind of in a roundabout way convince me not to move you know saying the house is beautiful and why would you want to move he basically said that so um well there's no explanation for why a guy would be so conversational about a house for sale that's really not on the market it's absolutely not on the market. No one knows about it. The, the neighbor straight across from me, I said I was thinking about it, but I didn't say I was. So, and I've never seen that guy before. I've lived here for many, many years. And um, he's not, he's not, he, I don't recognize him from the neighborhood. And um, yeah, it was, I would say, you know, even though he wasn't wearing a black suit or a black hat, that he was a definite MIB type. But this is an only. But I, is, like, and there again, I didn't think about that until my fiance said that he seemed supernatural and that he was basically manifesting with the house. He was a physical manifestation of of the house, is what she said. And this is not your only encounter 
in the last six months, uh, at least as far as I know. You you told me an event that happened with uh, your fiance up in uh, the Clackamas area, we'll call it, where you guys ran into somebody that was really out of place coming out of the woods. Describe that moment. Yeah, well, that was pretty unusual. Um, yeah, we saw this individual uh, come up this bank that was incredibly steep. And um, it did sound as though he was pulling himself up, um, but he sounded much larger than what we saw. What we saw was a guy who was maybe five foot nine. Um, he had uh, kind of like silky, well kept, very healthy looking hair that was uh, shoulder length. Um, he had on kind of an unusual shirt. I've never seen a shirt quite like that. Um, it had seams that were kind of showed, but it was kind of like a t-shirt, but it wasn't exactly a t-shirt. Um, it, I've never seen a shirt like it actually before. Um, I don't want to describe the exact, because I'm going to write about this, I don't want to describe the exact stuff that was on the shirt, but there was a strange thing on the back of the shirt, a uh, graphic that was just really odd and very, very pronounced, and that had kind of a meaning to my fiance and, and I. And uh, he was carrying a huge stick on his shoulder over his, I believe, right shoulder, the shoulder away from us. And um, he just ambled down the road. And uh, I had actually, like, I was never into uh, crystal anything. Like, I think, you know, stone crystals, uh, you know, I kind of dabbled a little bit, like, just as almost a joke. I brought some uh, some quartz crystals necklaces when I would go Bigfooting back in the early 2000s. Just, just, I thought, ah, you know, why not? If, if this has any possibility, I was, I, at that time, I was just trying to generate, you know, anything I could. And so that was, I just threw that, like, the kitchen sink into the into the mix. But I didn't place a lot of stock in the crystals. But I just had this strong urge, like, that afternoon before the sighting, early afternoon, which was which was right before dusk when we had the sighting. But uh, we went into town. Uh, my fiance loves coffee. We got some coffee for her and some other stuff. And uh, we ended up in this stone store in the town there. And uh, they had all kinds of curios and rare stones. And I ended up selecting a quartz sphere that was about the size of uh, half again bigger than a golf ball, I'd say and clear and so i took this up there and just sort of like i didn't really expect anything to happen but i i just floated out essentially like what what could amount to a contract when i think about it in retrospect it was like a contract and i just said if you show because we were having activity there i said if you show yourself and i'd be happy to give you this sphere and i will give you this sphere if you show yourself you know and then i went over and i put it on this log well Right before the guy showed himself, my fiance was talking about that very log. She's like, I thought you put some soap over on that log. And by the way, where's the steer? Didn't you put that on the log? And, I, and what I, we'd gone for a hike and I'd put it in the car just, you know, for while we hiked. I didn't want to leave it out in case, you know, someone came by. I think one car came by the whole day, though. And it was 4th of July. So, you know, that was 
you'd think there'd be more cars, but there were, there were, there weren't a lot of cars up there, even though it was the fourth. And, uh, so then at dusk, uh, right, right, right. When she said that my dogs start barking and up comes the guy up this like ridiculously steep bank on the other side of the road. And, uh, yeah, um, I just described his, uh, his presence like that of a rock star. I mean, he was absolutely charismatic. I mean, I would say if you put that guy next to Jim Morrison back in the day, this guy would be more charismatic <laughs> and I can't describe why he just had this air about him that was so intimidating. I tried to videotape the guy and I had my phone and, and it, and, and I thought, I, and I saw it, it was videotaping him. I saw my phone. I can look on the screen, you know, as I'm fil filming him. Well, as soon as he went out of view, my phone blinked and it started videotaping right then. And I didn't touch any buttons. And I was like, oh my God, I was so mad. I didn't tape the guy. And as soon as he saw me filming him, he looked the other way and he wouldn't turn his face to us. But before that he did look over at us. So we saw his face, but then as soon as we were from, and I just remember at the time, I didn't think he was supernatural until afterwards, like we started putting two and two together. And, um, man, that was weird. And then, so what was also strange is as soon as it started taping, uh, it formed this like whirlpool of, of like smear of like circular smear of, um, color of things it was photographing it starts out with like this this uh whirlpool of i don't know i can't describe it it's just i've never seen it on my phone before so and that was on the frozen screen on my phone so it was like this swirling mandala of photographic imagery so it was kind of weird that right. was uh and what, what were his, that was the fourth of july what were his clothes like coming down a rocky he had like linen rock. pants on like it looked like from the 1930s like linen style pants i've never seen pants like linen it's it's just unusual and then his shoes were i didn't get a good look at his shoes my fiance got a good look at his shoes got a look at his shoes and she said they were like sort of like tennis shoes but they weren't tennis shoes and she couldn't identify exactly what they were and then later on, uh, we sat there for 10 minutes and then I'm like, and then she goes, she reminded me of my offer I'd made about the, uh, or no, she didn't. That was later. Um, then she's just basically convinced me the guy could have been supernatural. And then I, I jumped in my car at that point and I went and I, ironically, I drove as far as this place where my friend this this guy named named John had actually photographed the Bigfoot print there. And I didn't know that because that was a weird thing. The very next weekend, we were hanging out with friends and John was there and he told us the story of how he had seen a Bigfoot right there. I was like floored. Like, what are the chances of that? You know, and I described the, the turn, the pullout. And he's like, oh, yeah, people put like refrigerators there and shoot them and all i'm like yeah that's the exact spot i mean i, I just can't believe it's like a makeshift uh gun range there you know and uh so um i turned around there i drove about a mile and a half down the road turned around and came back and the guy was not the guy was nowhere to be seen and there were no campsites up there and it was like a straight up and down bank on one side and this uh and then just basically a drop off sheer cliffs and places and down into this valley and kind of a very severe place but with lots of uh 
red or cedar trees and uh, lots of moss and very rainforesty, you know, even for Oregon. And uh, so um, then I'm like, I went back to camp and by then it's dark. And I talked, my fiance is like, I don't know if we should stay here tonight. You know, so we packed up and uh, as we're driving out, there's this stick right across the road, just up from where I turned around. It's lying straight across the road. And I, I photographed the stick. And then uh, we went back there a couple of weeks later and I matched it to this right where he'd come up the bank. There was a, one of the switches were broken off. It was the same diameter as that stick. And uh, so I, it was, it was just weird to see that he'd laid the stick horizontally perpendicular, just straight across the road. You know, so we had to drive over it. And as I was driving over it, I just had this feeling like I'm driving over like this magical thing or like staff or magician staff or whatever. It just felt weird. And then we got a long way down the road. We got all the way down the highway, the paved part. And I was like, and then I was like, I said to my fiance, I'm like, so what are the chances that that guy was supernatural? Cause she, she has this thing where it's part of her job where she has to like categorize statistics all day for her medical job she has. So she likes to, you know, c categorize, which really isn't that different from a lot of the sciences these days. They kind of just throw out these statistics. They kind of just pull them out of their shorts, you know, a lot of the time and make it seem all official. But so like, you know, it was just her opinion. It wasn't scientific. So she said, she goes 85%. <laughs> And I was just like, 85%? Really? That high? She's like, yeah. Yeah. That's just too, there's just too many factors. 85, maybe 90. And I'm like thinking, oh, man, I got to bring that sphere back then because I made a promise. So I went back there. And uh, I get out and, and I hear what sounded to me like bipedal walking in these dried leaves down by this creek right near where I had left the sphere. And I just made an announcement. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm making good on my promise. Here it is. Here's the sphere, you know. And I set it there. And then I got the hell out of there. But it sounded like three, it sounded like three or four bipedal thing. It didn't sound like deer or elk. I mean, I've heard deer or elk, you know, a hundred times. It didn't sound like that. It sounded bipedal to me. And actually, you and I went to that same spot um, a month earlier, and we found some really weird relics there that had been carved. Remember that? Yeah, I still have the uh, – what you're describing is a homemade vampire steak that says <laughs> – I know. It says know. vampire. It says vampire with a Y on the side of it. <laughs> I know. Which is actually a little a little bookish because you'll know like uh, Palidori, you know, uh, the friend of Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley. I mean, that's how he spelled it in his 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 story about the vampire, his poem. You know, I didn't, I didn't it used know to that. be spelled Y R E. Well, that night so. too that we were there, we only stayed one night, but um, there are a couple interesting things that you recalled happening that night because we made note of it and. That would have been around, I don't know, 1030 at night and near the brackish swamp that uh, we were, I was hanging my hammock 
and I don't know how you were sleeping that evening, but before we went to bed, we heard bipedal walking on the edge of the swamp going perpendicular to where we were. And the rain, yeah, started. I remember that rain mm -hmm. was flecking down, and then we saw little red lights, um, just little tiny yeah. laser, small pinpricks of light. And one was right over your right shoulder. And I think you remember said, yeah, I saw that too. And now see, I, you told me about the pinpricks and I, and, and I, I appear not to have a memory of that. I don't doubt you in the least, mm -hmm. but I just can't remember that. You know, I, I remember, I don't know, maybe I can, but it wasn't that long ago. It's odd that like, and then you mentioned it, not that long after, maybe like, or was it a month later? And I couldn't remember it. Remember that? Right, right. So it's well, very odd. I don't doubt you in the least. I'm just saying that when you're around the supernatural, mm -hmm. this this can happen, especially when you sleep there, you know? When you go back to the clothing that this, it sounds like Yanni coming up the mountain there. You saw a man. In Not that long. His hair wasn't that long. <laughs> no. It was a little shorter than that. And very, it was just, he looked impeccably groomed. I mean, that's the weird thing is that he looked so clean. Like it, not, a, not a, he had just come up a bank that the average person would be covered in dirt. It was actually a rocky substrate, but would be covered in dirt coming up that bank. Is this the, you know, ravine, an average is person. This the ravine where Rhesus had her encounter? No. Okay. Nope. All right. Okay. This is just down by the main road there and okay. uh, by the culvert. And uh, let me tell you, man, uh, that is, I tried to go down there to 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 to, to touch the uh, the um, sapling that he had snapped off, and as soon as, and I hurt myself. I started sliding down. I mean, it's it it is an average person. I I would have slid all the way to the bottom and seriously injured myself because it's down about forty feet. If if I hadn't hit the exact sapling with my foot and stopped myself from sliding down, that that guy snapped off. So it's still about six feet tall. That's another thing. I could reach up to the top of it where it was snapped off, but why would anyone in their right mind snap it off that high up? I mean, it's like, uh, I think it could have been a Sasquatch that we saw, you know, and ironically, my novel cultus describes that very type of thing, you know, them, uh, throwing different, uh, images that people see, you know, uh, you know, I don't, can't tell you how many times I've been driving uh, up by Mount Adams or, or just in the middle of nowhere. Um, when I see some weirdo walking along the road at like one in the morning, because I'm out, you know, when I used to go Bigfooting all the time, I was out all night. You know, I would I would nap it up. Then I'd have my steak dinner. I had this tradition where I would get a good steak, cook up a good steak, eat my steak dinner. And I don't eat a lot of red meat either. But when I went Bigfooting, I'd eat a steak, you know. And then um, I cook it. I had this special way I cook it with the spit that I would get from the area. I would cut a twig and I would hold it over the fire and I would create my spit where it had it had the, the power to hold the steak any way you want, uh, upside down, because the spit I made was, was spring-loaded. And um, I would cook my steak and I'd ride my motorcycle around or I'd ride my drive my car around or I'd walk around. Usually I wanted to cover a little more distance. So I'd try to use my motorcycle. And, uh, occasionally I'd see someone walk along the, the road and they were never Sasquatches, but you know, you'd look at them and there'd be just something a little off about them. And that's how this guy was in front of my house. Just a little off, you know, 
And uh, when you're around the supernatural, you get a vibe. But I got to say, in all honesty, that um, I did not get, I did not think in supernatural terms when I came in and started talking to my fiance. Uh, <clears throat> she's the one who said, "Oh, he's representing the house. They don't want you. To, they don't want us to move. The spirits don't want us to move." In fact, it makes me a little weird. Now I'm realizing I'm saying this in the house. <laughs> so <laughs> that's probably not the best, but. Well, so he wasn't exactly a man in black, like a traditional guy with shades on and fit oh, no. attire. No. Right. You know, I have my theory about the men in black. You know, I think they're phasing that out. I don't think they're worrying because I had a men in black encounter when I was six or seven in this haunted ranch house I grew up in. You know, and that was a typical men in black, although the hat was different, but everything else was the same, except the suit was just filthy, just filthy. I mean, the white shirt was just filthy, you know, and stunk. But it was a black suit with a thinnish tie, not too thin, but a some sort of tie. I don't know. I was six or seven. I can't remember. Maybe eight. But uh, so I've had, you know, I. Uh, I think that's the only men in black, actual black suit I've ever seen. But, um, I, you know, I never thought of that being as being a, a, an MIB, even up in where, you know, I became interested in MIBs a little bit later in life, you know, when I was in my late forties and, you know, I bought a few books on it. I didn't, I just couldn't bring myself to read them though, but, um, I never thought of that guy as an MIB. And then I was writing it up for this book I'm writing. And I was like, crap, that guy's just a prototypical MIB, you know? And, uh, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't that occur to me? He's wearing a black suit, you know, with a white shirt, but it never occurred to me. I never thought of him as an MIB. So, uh, but it's my theory though, that these days, you know, an outfit like that, first of all, the whole point of that outfit was so people would, you know, not pay him a lot of heat, kind of let him get free passes through our society without calling attention to themselves. If they wear a black suit like that now, who wears that? John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and the MIBs and who else? I mean, no one dresses that way much. So that's not how they dress now, in my opinion, unless, unless they're trying to like just tweak you and say, hey, ha, 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 I'm an MIB. And that's a different kind of mission then say just sort of like trying to pass through society unnoticed and about the, about their business or whatever, you know, if they dress up in, in a black suit now, it's to terrify or, or disorient, which isn't always, that isn't often their uh, modus operandi, you know, often, often they're just doing other things. And, you know, I've read plenty of accounts of Bigfoot's doing the same, you know, the same kind of activity. You, you, if they didn't look like Bigfoot you, and you put a briefcase in their hand, they'd be a business executive. I mean, these things don't, all, they don't go through the forest necessarily uh, like, like giant over, oversized uh, hominids, you know, that are looking for their dinner uh, in the forest. I mean, sometimes they have a business like way about them. Well, it's I've hard. only had one, I've only had one cut and dried uh, sighting of a, of a, a Sasquatch. And I didn't have, I didn't see it in those, you know, it was at the top of a giant quarry. So it was just looking down at 
myself and another individual who was Native American. Um, so I didn't really, I've never really seen a Bigfoot up close. To tell you the truth. I've seen what I thought were some Bigfoots going through the, the forest at, uh, at times, but never, and I've heard them very close, but I only had one cut and dried sighting. And it wasn't even a brilliant sighting. I mean, it was like the sun had gone down, had just gone down. It was behind the creature. Um, so it was more of a silhouette, but it lasted for like 20 minutes. So the time, the length of it was a long time, but the actual, I couldn't make out the details of its face or anything. You know, the last time that you uh, started writing, let's take cultus, for example, or maybe even cowslip. Um, now you're in the midst of writing another book. Um, you know, I've heard from other authors before, just the writing will bring out the paranormal. So is, do you ever pay that any mind that you're awakening something? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, after I had that, uh, men in plaid sighting, I couldn't think or talk about it. I mean, it wasn't as though I couldn't remember it. I mean, I could remember it fine, but I just, I didn't think about it. I just didn't, you know? And, uh, after that, when I tried to go bigfooting, I'd get really nauseated. And I couldn't Bigfoot for years. I'd just throw up, you know? And uh, I only really had the nauseated feeling, though, when when it felt as though there was activity. If I heard some vocalizations or branch breaking or uh, chest thumping or stomping or, you know, or just the feeling like that. Because I was going... <laughs> Man, I was going to some spots that were just red hot in terms of the, the historical amount of sightings there and, and things I'd experienced there. I didn't just go anywhere. I mean, I went to the quintessential spots in my and, – and Portland is just surrounded by them. If you get out an hour and a half out of the city, man, you can be in some really, really hairy spots, literally and figuratively. And if, you know, if you're like me, I mean, I have an encyclopedic memory in mind for these things, so – you know, I, I, I researched it meticulously, both in, in speaking with experts, um, in uh, internet, internet uh, research, and that was back in the golden age of the internet, when you could actually find what you were looking for, as opposed to now when it's buried under a mountain of detritus, sometimes on purpose. And um, so, man, I'll tell you, uh, if you wanted to find that data on the internet back then, I mean, there was a surprising amount up. It was going up pretty fast, but there wasn't anything to cover it up. There wasn't literally like pages and pages on Google. Like I'll do some of the same searches for stuff that interested me then. And I'll, I'll end up on page 20 of Google to find the damn thing. You know, back then you could find it on page one. So Bigfooting was way easier then because now it's compounded by sometimes like, obviously, I don't know with Bigfoot, but you know, with other things that you're looking for, like I'm a, I like conspiracy theories too. You know, Cliff calls me conspiracy Kirk. All the, the guys on finding Bigfoot, they always called, that was my nickname. Right. So I don't really like the term conspiracy, but there are other things too, where I get the feeling like, yeah, this has been purposely buried. I don't really get that feeling too much with a lot of the Bigfoot stuff, but the problem is now that everyone and their mother is Bigfooting. Back then, it was very rare, you know. It, there weren't very many of us then. Okay, let's uh, 
Let's leave the topic of Bigfoot here for a second, and let's go back to some photographs that you sent me from the Stillhouse Bar in Oregon City. Now, some of the photos that you get, uh, that you take with your phone, are inside the bar, and since you're on Strange Brow right now, it might be fitting to talk about the photographs of the goblins inside the, uh, the glass. Talk about those photos. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I was thinking about that just like a couple nights ago on Clyde Lewis. You know, I've hung out with Clyde several times. We're friends. Uh, you know, I mean, we're acquaintances, really, but, you know, he knows me. He's got cultists back behind his desk, and we've hung out several times after some events. We've had dinner with other mutual friends, and he had a guest on there uh, that was, uh, he somehow was like bending light rays from the sun with metal or something like that and photographing it, you know. And, uh, so my theory is that, you know, uh, modern photography, you know, in some ways, modern photography is like, is like old school photography, like the daguerreotypes and stuff like that. It's, the way I look at it is that we live in a, a spectrum of reality where things are neat and ordered as they seem to be, because most people are helping to order them with their expectation of order. But when you go outside, whether or not you got an electron microscope, a bent piece of metal and a digital camera, or, or you're photographing uh, whiskey uh, glasses in a historical pub that's perched over uh, the river where, you know, uh, McLaughlin himself, you know, came up that river and wanted to make that the capital of Oregon right there. I mean, it's, it's a historical place right there. Then there's this giant derelict, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Paper pulp factory down there. And it's just all these hulking masses of, it's like something out of uh, Mothman prophecies, man. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange area. And, you know, in, in many ways, the Scottish love it for that reason, because Scotland's kind of like that, too. I mean, you go to some of these these erstwhile cities that used to be uh, heavy industry, and now they're not, and everything's falling to ruin. And those things don't fall to ruin easily. you got to dynamite them. We're talking buildings that are, you know, with huge, thick concrete walls as thick as a house, you know. And um, so it's a, it's a historic area, and that bar itself... Uh, was I'm told uh, home to some uh, there some tragedies happened there some people died there again I don't think it's the spirits of the dead people that that uh, are is haunting the pub but rather uh, things attracted to that suffering in the past you know when you've got enough when you've got intense suffering and deaths that kind of that's that's just like Blood in the water for shark, you know, I mean, and these things move through time like sharks move through water. So, but the point is, though, that I was not thinking about it. You can't think about it. If you want to capture something, you're better off just taking a ton of pictures like I do. And then once in a while, once in a great while, you'll get something, you know, and that's what these were. And um, I had some, 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 you know, unmistakable imagery that just didn't look normal and uh looked goblin-esque and uh i showed it to the bartender and she freaked out she's like oh my god can you text those to me i gotta show those to the owner you know and i know the owner mick i mean he's a friend of mine so back then i didn't know him as well um but uh you know mick's a 
he's a former cardiologist. I mean, the guy's a brainiac, you know, and now he owns a historic pub, one of the best whiskey pubs in America, hands down. And so I get these images in there and they're very, they're very strange. You know, some of them look kind of monkey-like and others look almost dog-like and then others look like something out of uh, one of those, you know, wingnut films, you know, one of Peter Jackson's, uh, you know, visions for when he brought Tolkien's works to life. So another one looks like a giant fat man touching his chin, you know, and, uh, well, describe and some, of them, this, like car- some of them look like cartoons. Like there's one where this fetus thing it starts swirling and then there's a giant leg in it and it looks kind of like a cartoon. And you think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm looking around the pub later, like a month later thinking, well, when I finally discovered what was on the photographs, I was like, I went back to try to, about what the hell is, is something being reflected from the TV or like what could cause this, these strange images? But I couldn't figure it out, you know, what it could be. Describe how you took the photos, though, as far as what you were doing. How were you aiming the camera? Well, uh, now, now I went through a time. I don't. I've never really liked to drink very much. In fact, you know, I'm kind of like, even though I'm a bit overweight and I love food, I love food more than I love alcohol. You know, which has been the bane of my existence in later years. I've got to ease off and go on diets. But uh, so I have a sweet tooth, really. I love I love ice cream. I love sweets. I love a good a good juicy steak or a good piece of fish or I just love food, you know. So for me, I just don't really have an attraction to drinking a lot, you know. But um I was I got to it where I was being paid to be a whiskey critic and I was being paid at a very expensive bottle of whiskey. And you know, sadly I was probably making more money per hour doing that than anything else I've ever written which is very sad for a guy like me. I, I, you know, I mean, it's nice to be making money from doing what writing whiskey reviews, but I would like to be making money from my passion, which is writing novels or writing memoirs or, you know, something like that. And so, uh, now at that time, the still house had some extremely rare bottles. And I came across one that I just couldn't believe it's from a mothball distillery. Um, and uh the uh the rose bank and uh you just don't come across rose banks much because uh mothballs means the distillery wasn't just closed but destroyed demolished demoed as they say here they say mothballed over there in scotland and that means the stills were uh taken and either melted for scrap or taken by another distillery and used that often happens and uh, rose bank uh made some it was a lowland whiskey so um most of the Lowland whiskeys were triple distilled and really not that remarkable to me because uh, when you triple distill a whiskey, that means the effluvium goes up through the pipe as as, as mist, as, as uh, condensation, and then is, is condensed down, down the spout. And then that process is done three times. It takes a lot of the uh, character out of the whiskey, you know, but it makes it smoother. So if you just don't really appreciate the eccentricities of a single malt scotch, then the triple distilled stuff was popular in like, I don't know, like a hundred years ago, you know, 80 years ago, it fell out of favor. And a lot of those distilleries down in the lowlands of Scotland went out of business and Springbank remained. You've still got a couple down there, three or four, a couple, a uh, couple really making some good ones, a couple not. And um, so I was just in love with the Springbank and uh, 
you know, it sounds a lot to pay, you know, uh, like 18, 19 bucks for a glass of whiskey. That sounds like an awful lot. But uh, there were people around the country that would have paid three times that for what I was tasting. And so I just couldn't stop going back, you know, I'd save my money up. I'd go back for some more, like just one glass. You know? I was there actually with uh, what I call a lightning rod. She was an ex- ex-girlfriend of mine, Diane, who just, you meet these, these women. I find, you know, generally speaking, that women attract more supernatural stuff than men. Um, and uh, this woman, she has like zero interest in the supernatural, but man, she attracts a lot of and she was there right next to me when I was taking these pictures. And I don't, I don't glaze over that lightly. It could have been her presence because she really, the Bigfoot's really like her. I've been Bigfooting with her and had some amazing things happen. Vocalizations. I had one come right at the picnic table in the dark and, and she jumped up to get something out of the car. And it, it literally had to back pedal away from her boomingly in the, in the substrate of the uh, forest loam. That's kind of semi hollow in that campsite. So it, it boomed, you know, I was just, Oh my God, we both were freaked out by that. But anyway, so she attracts spirit activity and Bigfoot activity. And uh, so we, I was just basically photographing this rose bank just lovingly. Like um, the, the label, I just loved the bottle and the color of it and the way it caught the light. And I was holding it up to the light. And uh, so that's what I was doing. I was, I, was, I was photographing this rose bank that was so rare and so wondrous. Of, of an elixir that um and i was so happy too i was just so because it's not like i really even uh you know it's like i you know when i get to the end of a glass of rosebank like that it's not like i want another one i mean i enjoy just savoring it a little tiny sip of just tickle tickle the tongue a little with this amazing expensive uh scotch you know um so, yeah, so that's what I was doing when I got the images. So in a way, you're kind of using your whiskey glass as kind of like a scrying whiskey? No, I was just holding it up and trying to capture. You know, I like photographing. I, I uh, Ever since cell phones got so good with the good cameras in them, I just, I've just i just really enjoyed. And the way you can delete images, take a bunch, and just, just keep a few, I mean, I was just having fun trying to photograph the whiskey, and I was planning on writing uh, a review on it. For my own, at that time, I had my own private blog. It was it was called uh, the Whiskey Kirk, and uh, so yeah. But you actively use your smartphone to try to bring about uh, manifestations on your phone. I've seen you do it. Not manifestations. Like I said, the spectrum. You know, when you get uh, into the electron microscope, or you get to the daguerreotype both ends of what you, the spectrum of what you call normalcy, um, then strange things begin to happen and you begin to capture imagery and, and things and possibly living creatures that you wouldn't otherwise be able to photograph, you know? I also experiment with swirling. I'll stand out in a field that's, that has a lot of activity and I'll just start swirling around and try and see what will show up in my picture. I haven't really gotten very much that way, but... I have, I just experiment all the time. I'm always trying new things. And uh, these digital cameras just afford all kinds of opportunities. I've come up with all kinds of ways of getting outside the normal spectrum of experience. And it's in that area where you can capture things. I'll do things like I'll photograph a river and, and juxtapose the, Im- or turn the images in different directions. 
look for the reflections on the water. I mean, there's one area where um, I was actually told that area by uh, Tom Powell back in like 2001 um, on the uh, Malala River. And Tom helped me a lot uh, just getting started, you know, back in the early 2000s. Like I was already, I had already grown up, you know, in a farmhouse with Bigfoot activity on the hill behind it. And the people that bought the house from my parents reported that Bigfoot activity, you know? So I, it's not, it's not as though he helped me get started being around Bigfoot. He, he just pointed me to some really cool areas where, you know, a lot of these areas too, they hadn't had activity in ages. Like they were like maybe active 10 years earlier and then went dead, which often happens. These places will run hot and cold. And so this particular spot, I took Diane there. Oh, my God. Oh, all hell broke loose on that trip. I mean, I'm writing about it, so I don't want to just give it all away, but it was just an incredible experience. I mean, just really one of the kinds of things that just, you know, most people had experienced that once in a lifetime. But, like, because I constantly put myself, I don't want to say in harm's way, but in the supernatural's way, just constantly doing it intelligently calculatedly you know almost like lying across the threshold of these supernatural portal-esque places and just putting it was very stupid really i mean um you know at the time i just couldn't stop myself from doing it i was fascinated by the supernatural and you know we're just kind of mesmerized into thinking oh something supernatural happened that is this not great you don't really weigh it in your mind and think well is that a healthy thing to be around I mean, like the common sense people had just maybe like our grandparents' generation. They had a lot more common sense about the supernatural than a lot of us have, you know, because because they were going on the bearings of their grandparents and their grandparents were far wiser than they about the supernatural. So we're actually becoming far more stupid as time goes along in regard to the supernatural. And this whole idea that humanity is on the threshold of some, you know, awake great awakening and we're we're becoming so much more tuned in to the spirituality of the universe i couldn't disagree more i think that we're we're losing a lot of the baggage of the dogmas that were built into the churches to keep people from staying in touch with the spiritual but and you know and that could be good in some ways but then we're also throwing the baby out with the bathwater and all the positive spiritualization with angels angelic beings love truth life you know universal consciousness, all these things. We're not getting closer to those generally. We're getting farther and we're using terms like the universe and lots of pantheism. Oh, it's, you know, material objects, you know, having spiritual forces and then mistaking harmful spirits for good ones and believing everything they tell you. And it's like, I think we're actually becoming, we're de-evolving like the Ben Devo sang about, you know, I think we're, we're devolving. We're not, we're not becoming more enlightened. We're becoming less enlightened. And whatever we're gaining, we are gaining in certain directions, is it, we're losing far more than we're gaining. It's like just imagine being on a treadmill and slowing down, you know. We're, we're being pulled backwards, in my opinion. We're not, we're, not, we're not becoming more enlightened. And, you know, no one wants to hear that. It's a downer. But, you know, I'm not the kind of guy where, you know, if I have a friend... And like, maybe I, um, I'll give you an example. So my fiance, Risa knows a lot about medicines and, and I went to hang out with a friend, you know, up North, another state. And, uh, she noticed that he seemed in need of a certain vitamin. 
you know, by the way he was walking and, and stuff. And most people would never stick their necks out and mention that to a, a friend that they hadn't seen in years, you know, because no one wants to be told they need a vitamin because there's, you know, they have a deficiency or whatever, you know, and or maybe they're eating too much meat and maybe suffering from gout or whatever, you know, that's not the kind of thing most people would say. They'll, they'll actually sacrifice their friend's well-being because they know their friend will like them less for having said it. But I'm the kind of person where, whether it's society or the individual, I have to try to help. You know, that's what I'm up to. I would always tell myself when I was going to these big sweating areas or being around, the super, I'm doing this for society. I want to learn. And I would even say it to these creatures. I'm here to try to help. Can you help? Can you point me in the direction that will help society, that will help us? We're, we're, the earth is being destroyed, you know? And so that, that's why I see my, um, my adventures and my religion, which is trying to make sense of the supernatural, is my religion, you know? It's built on the backs of other religions. It's built on the backs of uh, Native Americans and their wisdom. Um, and that's been destroyed by that wisdom. It's built on the backs of all kinds of other things, but it's also built on my own back, <laughs> my own suffering, you know? And uh, I was just, a, a lot of my motivation for doing all these things, it wasn't just simple in, intrepidity or curiosity or, you know, it was literally trying to make the world a better place, you know? That was, that was I would say that was well over half of my motivation in everything I've done in the supernatural. We're here with author Sig Sigurdsson, author of Cultus and Cowslip. Sig, if uh, people want to get a hold of you and email you about their own encounters or ask you some questions about your upcoming book, which you're kind of tight-lipped about, which I understand, but is there a way people can reach out to you? Oh, you know, um, I used to have a website. I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of woodshedding right now. What I would say is if they could contact you, you could point them toward me. I mean, you've done that before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that would be great. Um, I'm trying to think if I have, I have so many uh, email addresses. I'm trying to think of one I could use. Um, I just, I probably have like 15 and I can't remember most of well, them. But, shoot, um, me a, shoot me a message at strangebrowradio at gmail.com. Yeah. If you want to uh, speak to Kirk in depth about something, I'll put you in contact with him. The final note here is um, the question I have to ask you is there's a little bit of trepidation, a warning, investing too much time and a price to pay for the individuals here physically uh, interacting with the non-physical talk to the audience about that and your experience with the, the price to pay messing with this too much. Well, I think a couple of things kept me alive because I put myself in harm's way way too much and, uh, I risked too much. You know, I went to really dangerous spots and I, I did dangerous things there that attracted activity. Um, I'm in no way a warlock or anything like that. Um, you know, I was raised as a Christian scientist. And, um, you know, whereas I'm, I'm not thrilled about some things about organized religion, that one uh, notwithstanding, um, I do uh, feel a strong connection to kind of an ancient form of uh, being, being uh, tied into goodness and angels and 
true light, not not light, not darkness calling itself light, but real light and goodness and uh, what some people might call God, other people might call the universe, other people might call universal consciousness, whatever. And so I think that you know when things really went went south um, figuratively, when I was in a when I was in a hot spot and and uh, the activity got really bad, I would pray. And I think that whether or not you're a, a Muslim or a Christian or a Jewish person or a Buddhist or whatever, I really do think that there are positive things about all those religions. And if you focus on the goodness and not the chains and not the dogma and not the darkness that has been inbuilt into it over the centuries and millennia, then you know, you can you can really tie into some good things that can help you. And your faith and belief can actually protect you around these kinds of creatures because most of them, in my opinion, are not benevolent, you know, especially in these kinds of spots. Um, and uh, I think that um, <clears throat> if you're if you're a supernaturalist, a paranormalist, if you uh, if your science friends call you woo woo and you actually consider, feel that a little insulted by that, which you should feel, um, if you're serious about it, then um, I think that precautions need to be taken, and I think that you shouldn't believe everything you're told by spirit beings because they have a completely different set of priorities and what benefits them probably won't benefit you necessarily. And that's an unpopular thing to say. And it doesn't hold true for angels. So, but most people don't have the ability to be able to tell the difference between an angel and a spirit being. I don't think that to me, I don't think of an angel as a spirit being. I think it as, I think of it as a direct emanation of goodness, you know, from the source. So that's different, you know, and you can have spirit beings. There are, there are good and evil human beings too. And, you know, I, I think spirit beings can be like that. But if you're a cow, how many good ranchers are there if you're being raised for beef? Just ask yourself that, you know, think in those terms. And then get back to me, because if you think that if you're a cow and you think the rancher is looking out for your best interest, well, it's true to a point that rancher is make sure you have enough to eat. Because if you're skinny, you can't butcher skin and bones. There's no money to be made. You know, there's going to be a nice pasture. It's going to be kept clean for the most part. A nice, nice fresh grass, and maybe a nice big pasture to walk in, a barn in the winter, some hay. You know, and, and you might get a false sense of security. You might think, well, you know, that rancher's not so bad after all. And yeah, okay, some people are telling me that, you know, his, his uh, cattle dog is, there's some kind of a conspiracy going on with the cattle dog and the rancher to herd us around. I think that's not true. He's just a nice guy, you know? And I, I, unfortunately a huge number of paranormalists and, uh, you know, people like that, they, they approach it like that. And they actually revere these beings as gods and, 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 and probably for good reason, because, they want to be revered as gods, a lot of them. They want that reverence because that reverence, you know, benefits them. But uh, I tend to think that um, if you're working for a higher 
purpose. And that higher purpose is actually you're really trying to benefit humanity. I mean, for goodness sakes, I mean, the human race has been utterly smashed in the dirt throughout most of its history of, of organized civilization. I mean, we're not a ballroom. We're being smashed into the mud over and over and over again. And we're being smashed in the mud by forces we don't understand, you know, orchestrated wars, orchestrated financial servitude, um, you know, governments, all kinds of things that on the surface, they're designed to look healthy and good. But I mean, if you really look at the net result of them, I mean, come on, our planet's being destroyed. Most of the bees are gone. Is it all our fault? No, it's not all our fault. We've been put into a prison cell. So we have to work practically all of our waking life just to make ends meet, you know, and that isn't natural. And so, no, we're not, we're not killing the bees through, through uh, just trying to get by like that. Um, the bees are actually, I think, are being purposely destroyed, not, not as individual insects, but I think the earth is being destroyed on purpose. So now what would that benefit? Well, that's part two. Is it fair to say that you think most people are just plain asleep and that you're more awake? You kind of broken out of the matrix here and see a lot of slave mentality? Well, you know, uh, when you find yourself in a position where you've kind of, you've, you've rubbed up against things that are different from most people, you've put yourself in situations that most people would run from for their very lives, and you've done it over and over and over again over the years, and you've tried to communicate with these beings for the best of intentions, not for sensationalistic reasons, like a bunch of people sitting around the table with a planchette. Um, but you're really trying to make the world a better place, genuinely, benevolently trying to do that. Um, and then you've been consistently maligned uh, in the workplace, out of the workplace, made fun of. Um, I find nothing more ironic than a bunch of people that have devoted much of their lives to um, researching Bigfoot and Sasquatches to, you know, having a narrow point of view um, about another kind of research, you know, that, that they, they believe is in the sciences and the integrity of the sciences. And yet they're, you know, in my opinion, they're going out and they're researching beings that can read their minds. I mean, how in the hell do you do a priori reasoning with that? I mean, how in the hell do you, you, you use a scientific approach to something that knows what knows you're coming, let alone what you're going to do. I mean, it's, it's stupid. It's idiotic, you know, but I would never say that to my friends, to their faces. They, most of them will say that a, a lot of that, what I do is idiotic and they'll say it nicely in, in different terms, but I see a lot of hypocrisy in the big funding field, you know, and I just find that to be, I mean, if your fellow Bigfooters um, draw lines in the sand between um, woo-woo people that they call woo-woo people and then our camp, which are the scientists, you know, using uh, cutting edge technologies and, you know, <clears throat> a, a uh, 500 years worth of uh, brilliance on, from humanity, instead of realizing the sciences have been shaped for the benefit of the very few ruling classes. And, and they're using a bunch of dogma, just like kind of reminds me of, you know, the witch hunts in the Catholic Church. I mean, they're the sciences. You don't think there are witch hunts these days among scientists that really think for themselves. I mean, come on. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I felt resentment. I've been hurt. You know, my life has been very painful. I mean, I took the hard road. I took the narrow path, you know. And um, wide is the gate for those that go in there at and, and lead to perdition. I mean, you know, it's like the easy road isn't necessarily the best road. And But I got to say, though, that uh, I felt lately like it's I, I need to pull back from the supernatural and I need to really kind of reconnect with angels and, and, and goodness and source consciousness and just really try to uh, surround myself with positivity and forgiveness and love and, you know, not, not love that gets something, but, but unselfish universal love, uh, un unconditional love. No one can really do that indefinitely, but little bursts of it when you can muster it, you know? And so uh, even though I've, you know, I've had a lot of my ideas taken from me. I've, I've had things plagiarized. I've had a lot of my, all the, all the fruits of my labor. I've had a lot of them plucked off the table right in front of me. Um, and then, you know, presented uh, and reconditioned, presented in, in other terms. And, you know, my friend, Henry Franzoni has had the same problem. And he talks about that. We, we hung out for a whole after the better part of an afternoon and an evening. Um, you know, last year, late last year. And, uh, you know, so it can be frustrating when, you know, you spend a lot of your time and then you try to show, share things with friends or whatever, and some of it gets scooped. I mean, it's bound to happen, but it can be frustrating. So yeah, you can feel resentment. I mean, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you just have to look at, well, what's the net result? I mean, uh, you know, uh, if, if these people are trying to make the world a better place, then, then God bless them. You know, I hope, they, you know, can take the ball and run with it. So a lot of them aren't, though. A lot of them are trying to just, you know, make money or whatever. And, you know, we all need to make money. There's nothing wrong with making money. But um, if that's your prime motive, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do the right thing and along that way you can make a living from it, and not, not a get-rich-quick scheme where you're like a multi-multi-millionaire, but just paying the bills and, you know, then doesn't that benefit society too? If you can eke out a living and actually live in a little house and pay your bills, doing what you love, you know, trying to write about things that make the world a better place. Is that really so bad? Is that really materialistic and selfish? So, um, yeah. So, I mean, does that answer your question? Well, of course it does. Yeah. No, I, I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, the, the idea that there's a price to pay investing yourself in the supernatural and again the you know the footsteps of a, a sasquatch trackway lead in so many different directions and each time there's this price to be paid for investing too much time and money and family into into looking at it because of the push-pull effect beyond it there um, i want to get your perspective and you gave it to me if you want to uh, meet Sig Sigurdsson, uh, he will be in attendance at a Strange Brow live event that's going to be coming up on July 12th and 13th. The tickets on sale can be found at strangebrow.com. This is your chance to not only pick Sig's brain on the 12th at a private uh, event that we'll be having, uh, but you can also pick Ron Moorhead's brain of the Sierra Sounds and Joe Hauser of the Montana Vortex and the aforementioned uh, Tom Powell 
We'll also have Carrie Campbell, energy light worker, and maybe just maybe we can talk my uh, my friend and girlfriend and sponsor Aaron Jackson to join us in this new form that we're going to do. It's called Secrets of the Sasquatch, and the idea behind it is to immerse the audience in this conversation to move the subject matter forward more than it has been previously because I feel like we're incredibly lacking just based upon laziness and ego. So I'm trying to put uh, a forum together here and have the audience kind of surprise the speakers because I think most of these speakers feel, um, well, they're separated from the crowd to be frank. They're, they're behind a podium, first of all, on stage, elevated with a PowerPoint. And I can't think of anything more separate than having, you know, a 60-minute diatribe laid out with uh, hopefully some good audio and video clips. But we've kind of all seen that for the last 25 years, at least I have. So what I'd like to do is uh, invite everybody to immerse themselves more in kind of a roundtable format and actually be a part of the discussion here. And I'll, I'll have more on those details for the people that attend that and as well as the speakers. But uh, again, you can find out uh, more about those tickets on sale. That's July 13th, July 12th and 13th, Friday and Saturday. And uh, you can either go the two-day event or you can just come for the Saturday fun. And that will be at the Axe and Fiddle. That's a historic pub in Cottage Grove, Oregon. It's uh, 695 East Main Street in Cottage Grove. And talk about a place that has some activity. If uh, you want to be a part of history, um, stick around at the Axe and Fiddle after hours. There's uh, a good reason to think that that place may be haunted, quite haunted actually. And so we're excited to, to be able to have an uh, event there and share that experience with everyone. Hey, Sig, thanks for joining us on Strange Brow Radio. And um, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, you know, the Axe and Fiddle, just put in a plug for the Axe and Fiddle. It's actually situated near some area that uh, Toby and I had some success with in terms of uh, witnessing some supernatural stuff. Everything from chest thumping, kind of like a big giant tub to um some orb activity mm -hmm. remember that right and it continues to be active in the area there and we'll get more into that uh in april where we uh actually doing an overnight with a couple of disc jockeys from 1120 kpnw on the property i took you to kirk and um we're gonna do a, a live am uh recap of what the overnight was let, like out in that area so I look forward to that next month. And we're also going to offer a dousing class out in the woods and uh, use some copper dousing tools to look for more than garbage. And uh, so I'll be talking more about that in length at uh, strangebrow.com and our Facebook page. But um, anyway, I really appreciate you being on here and uh, we'll have to do it again. Sounds good, Tobes. Have a good one. That was author and experiencer sig sigurdsson the book cultus the other book cowslip the future book huge question mark he won't tell us won't tell me i don't know maybe his girlfriend knows i can maybe maybe just maybe she'll spill the beans i doubt it but you get the idea from the conversation it's a 
nonfiction account, which makes it even more interesting. If you've got comments about this interview, I'd love to hear them. Go to strangebrowradio at gmail.com, Facebook under the same name, YouTube. You can find us, our live events. We have some tickets for sale. Go to strangebrow.com and tell us what you think. Hey, shoot me an email, strangebrowradio at gmail.com if you've got some strange brow happenings. Or if you just wanted to know more about the show, um, love to hear back from the listening audience. And if you think you'd be a good match for a guest or have guest ideas, this is where you can find us at strangebrowradio at gmail.com. All right, that's our show. Every Monday, we'll be here. And, of course, we will see you in the trees. (laughs) 